We're doing a series on Ephesians. Ephesians. You can find it in your Bibles on page 949. Page 949. Are there no Bibles in the choir loft? A few, a handful? All right. Note. Note. Ephesians. We're looking at chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 15 through 22. Paul writes, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, You may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he's put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Probably find it helpful to leave your Bibles open. This last Thursday, I attended a meeting of Classis Grand Rapids East. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term Classis, a Classis is a regional group of churches that meets three times a year. And one of the privileges of being your chaplain is that I normally don't have to go to those meetings. But I went on Thursday because our very own Aaron Winkle, our associate chaplain for all sorts of fun things, including many of you, uh, was examined by this classes as part of his road toward ordination. Aaron had to be examined, he had to be quizzed on Bible and theology knowledge, he had to tell his personal call story, he had somebody talk about his sermon, he was just grilled. And he passed with flying colors. I'm right here, right there. Yes. Now, I know Aaron. I've known Aaron for a while. I was his professor for a couple of classes when he was over at the seminary, and I was over at the seminary. And I've been his boss for, well, almost four months now. Yes. And so, so I know Aaron. I know that he loves his wife, Betsy, who's also here tonight. I know that he has two uh, very entertaining children, Quincy and Annie. I know that he was a basketball star here at Calvin and led the team to the national championship when he was here at Calvin College. I know that he has a great sense of humor. I know that he likes to ask really good questions. I know that he is a delight to work with. I know these things about him. But when I sat in that meeting on Thursday and I listened to Aaron tell the story of his call, I learned a lot of things about Aaron that I didn't know before. I didn't know, for example, that when Aaron was here at Calvin, he was a business major. 
And when people would say to him, what are you going to do after Calvin? He would say, well, I'm anything but going to ministry. And when he graduated from Calvin, he went to play professional basketball in Europe for a year. And I, I didn't know that before. But before he left to go to Europe, there was a, a firm on Wall Street that made him an offer. They said, yeah, go play ball for a year, but then come back and work for us. So he had a sweet deal. A year playing ball, traveling the world, and then come back to a great job on Wall Street. But I didn't know that while Aaron was over in Europe playing ball, the spirit was working really hard on him and telling him, yeah, the Wall Street thing, don't do it. That's all the spirit said. The spirit didn't say what to do, but the spirit said what not to do. Don't do the Wall Street thing. And so when he called the firm to tell them that he wasn't going to take the job, the person on the other end of the line said, you are making the biggest mistake of your life. All of these things I did not know about Aaron until Thursday. Some of you are now living with people who have been your friends, but now you live with them. And suddenly you're learning things about them. You're coming to know them better in ways that you haven't known them before. You did not know until you lived together, for example, that she is horrible until she has that first cup of coffee. <laughs> you did not know until you lived with him that he has the ability to sleep anytime, anywhere. You did not know until you lived with her how fussy she is about the organization of the refrigerator magnets. <laughs> These are the things that we learn about each other when we start to live with each other, when we move and we know each other deeply. One of the things that marks a great marriage or a great friendship is that the people who are in it are always curious about the other. They want to know what makes you tick. What gets you excited? What do you love? What do you hate? And this goes on over a lifetime, constantly wanting to know the person better. In this section in Ephesians that we've been walking through, Paul prays that the people who read his letter will come to know God better. In fact, he prays that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation as they come to know him. And the Greek there implies that he is praying and praying and praying. He is continually praying. And it also implies that they already know him, but he wants them to know God better. As you come to know God better, may you be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now you, if you've been tracking with us over this Ephesians series, you know that this was a letter that was read by primarily two groups of people. It was read by Gentiles and it was read by Jews, all together in one church. But those are the two groups that Paul had to be thinking about as he was writing this letter. And now we know that the Jews knew God. They had all the stories of the Old Testament. They had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. They had... Esther, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Ruth, they knew all these stories. They knew how God had revealed himself through time. But this idea that the Messiah became incarnate, died, and rose again, well, 
To somebody who's been reared in the Jewish faith, who believed that the Messiah was going to usher in an earthly kingdom, who was going to conquer their enemies, finally throw off enemy Rome or whoever it was at the time. The idea that the Messiah came to die and then rise again and was also God? Well, they needed to know God better. And for the Gentiles who read this letter, they'd grown up in a culture in which there were lots of gods and goddesses. And these gods and goddesses fought each other all the time. And they had sex. And then they made other gods. And it was a big, complicated mess. It was like, you know, first century soap opera kind of thing going on there. <laughs> and so the idea that there was one god, one all-powerful, almighty god, and that god actually loved them, cared for them, adopted them, as we talked about last week, into his family, well, that was new news to them. And so that's how they needed to know God better. And for us, for those of us who think that God is the big Santa Claus on high, and we can just ask for what we want, and if he doesn't give us what we want, then we have a right to be really angry about that and pout a while. Well, we really need to know God better. And for those of us who thinks, think God has this big clipboard and he's constantly marking the good things you do and the bad things you do, and we think that by the end of our life, if the good things outweigh the bad things, then we're home free. If we think that about God, well, then we need to know God better. And if we think that God is a giant pep rally that, you know, he fires us up and gets us ready to go and do things, but he never holds us accountable or calls us on our behavior or has the ability to judge us. Well, then we need to get to know God better. So Paul offers this amazing prayer of intercession at the beginning of this letter, and he prays that we will have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of our heart will be opened, enlightened, that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened so that we can come to know three things in particular about God. Hope, to which he has called us, the glorious riches of our inheritance, and the amazing power of God. Hope, inheritance, and power. Now, hope is something that we all have, but we root it in different ways. And, and Paul wanted to be sure that people were rooting it in the right things. So hope kind of reaches back to what we were talking about last week, of being, being part of the family of God, and knowing that that family reaches through time. It reaches through eternity. And the hope that we have is that the family we have now is the family that we are always going to have. The hope that we have is that what sustains us is what God has done, not what we have done talked about that last week. The glorious inheritance we have, Paul also alluded to last week when he talked about the gift of the Spirit, that we are marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, an inheritance for us. And the Holy Spirit has given us all gifts. You know this if you've grown up in the church. Some people lead, some people have mercy, some people have teaching, some people have prophesy, prophesying gifts. We all have gifts. That's our great inheritance. And we get to share those gifts together. And we'll be talking about that more in a few weeks when we get to that part of the letter where Paul talks about being equipped. So Paul says, I want you to get your hope right. 
I want you to understand the inheritance. But what he really focuses on in this section is the power of God. He really unpacks this idea of power. If you look at 19, he says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. And then he says, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him as his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power, authority and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age and the age to come. Now what Paul is doing there is helping the Gentiles unpack what happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because imagine that you've grown up in Ephesus. Ephesus is a city that had a favorite goddess. The goddess of Ephesus was Artemis. And if you know the story in the book of Acts chapter 19, you know that when Paul went in and he started preaching about Jesus, everybody who made the little statues of Artemis got really mad. Because they made these cool statues of Artemis. I mean, she was something else. She was the huntress. She had a bow and arrow with her all the time. She was often pictured with a deer. But English, don't confuse her with like, you know, Julie Andrews' Sound of Music kind of, no. <laughs> Artemis was not someone who suffered fools. In fact, you know how myths kind of vary depending on region, but in myth after myth after myth about Artemis, they usually end because she, she does one of these things. Hey, you've kind of ticked me off. She kills like everybody at the end of the myths. She's constantly taking vengeance out. Her twin brother's Apollo. If he gets ticked off about something, she's there. She helps him out. She's not a god to be messed with. So you've grown up in Ephesus. This is your goddess, Artemis. But that's not all there is. Let's imagine that your grandmother is really into astrology. And she keeps warning you about the things that you shouldn't or shouldn't do based on watching the stars. And let's say that you've got a cousin who's a priest. And he tells you all the secrets about what the priests actually do in the temples. He tells you that they've cut these little chambers, these little holes in the temple so that when someone comes in to pray and he or she pours out their spirit and says what they need, the priest will speak through a hole in the wall and pretend to be the voice of God and say, oh, well, in order to get that, um, I think a bag of money would help you. Why don't you give it to that priest? How about, how about some of that fresh, that fresh produce? How about some bread? How about... How about you go have sex with that person, right? That priest, the priest. So they would manipulate people into bringing things into the temple. But the whole thing was based on fear because if you didn't do it and the priest actually had some power with the god or goddess, then you were in big trouble. If you didn't honor Artemis, you were in big trouble. If you didn't pay attention to the roots of the stars and what was happening, you were in big trouble. The entire Religious culture of Ephesus was based on fear. You had to be afraid of these things. So Paul is saying, listen, this is what God did. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he exalted him up at his right hand, far above every rule and authority and dominion and power. Far above all of those things that you've been taught to be afraid of far above all of those things. And then he says, and above every name that can be named in this age or the age to come. 
Now, those of you who know about spiritual warfare know that you get an advantage if you can name the demon. Jesus meets the demon-possessed man on the shore of the sea, and he asks him, what is your name? And the man says, legion, for we are many. Paul says, here's what's happened. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of God has come down, so all of those names are nothing anymore. All of the names of the demons are nothing anymore. All of the things that you have been taught to fear are nothing. Because of the power of the resurrection, everything is rooted in the power of the resurrection. And then for the Jews, a nod toward their understanding, verse 22. Paul writes, and God has put all things under Christ's feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all in all. Well, any good Jew worth his or her salt would have immediately heard in that a reference to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. David wrote there, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Those of you who were part of the leadership commissioning when we looked at the washing of the feet, you remember that the feet were like the lowest part. They were dirty all the time. They had to walk through muck everywhere. They were the worst thing. To put your dirty old feet on somebody, that was completely disgusting. I was once riding in... Uh, the metro line in the UK, and it had been a long day, and there was nobody else in my car except me and my friend, and I put my feet up on the seat across from me. We were sitting there and riding along, and suddenly this voice came on over the loudspeaker. Please remove your seat from the cushion ahead of you. It is unsanitary and impolite. <laughs> I thought, like, that, was the, that was the most polite way to say, would you please get your feet off the seat? But that's the idea, that you put your feet on something, that is disgusting. You know, in the British, it's, it's unsanitary and impolite. <laughs> Here, it's gross. The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It goes on from there. The Lord sends out from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your foes. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. He will drink from the stream by the path. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So for the Jews, who for years, centuries, generations, had been an oppressed people, always worried that their nation was just going to die out and dwindle away, for them, the idea was that the Messiah was going to come and conquer all their enemies. And Paul says, yes, that's exactly what happened, except you had the enemies wrong. You were looking at earthly enemies. And what God did in Jesus Christ was conquer the spiritual enemies, conquer the demonic forces, conquer the things that really matter, the things that really sap our life. For our God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ has conquered death itself. And so Paul says to the Gentiles and Paul says to the Jews, you don't have to be afraid anymore. 
You don't have to be afraid of those nutty gods and goddesses of the demonic powers of the manipulative priests. You don't need to be afraid of that anymore. And to the Jews, you don't need to be afraid about the emperor coming down. You don't need to be afraid about your little nation coming down to nothing. You don't need to be afraid of that stuff anymore. Because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, you don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid anymore. I'm going to guess that some of you are really afraid. You're afraid of really letting God know you, of really knowing God. You're afraid, more concretely, that you're going to graduate from this fine institution and not be able to get a job. You're afraid that the financial concerns of your parents will mean that you will not be able to finish here. You're afraid that as you watch all these other people match up that you're never going to find anyone. You're afraid that if you tell people what you really think, what is really true, what is really a proclamation of God into their lives, that they're not going to like you anymore. You're afraid of failure. And so you work really hard and you're overcommitted and you don't sleep enough and you don't eat well because you're constantly running on this fear of failure. I can't disappoint my parents. I can't disappoint my professors. I can't disappoint me. We left Aaron not knowing what he was going to do next. He had turned down the job on Wall Street. His wife took a job in Des Moines as a school counselor, so they moved to Des Moines, Iowa, and Aaron became a telemarketer. Superstar basketball player, job offer on Wall Street, telemarketer in Des Moines. And he was thinking, what? Like, I obeyed. You said no to, I said no to Wall Street, and now? So when he was on break, he was home, he went to Calvin to visit some people, he had conversations with three of his mentors. And Glenn said to him, Aaron, have you thought about, you ever thought about coming back to work at Calvin? He was like, ah, no. <laughs> And then he, he, he met with his mentor, Kevin, and Kevin said to him, hey, have you ever thought about coming back to work at Calvin? And he said, oh, no, no. Hmm. And then his mentor, Dale, said to him, hey, Aaron, you know, you know what you might want to consider? Coming back to work at Calvin. <laughs> and Aaron was like, huh, well, that, well, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> All right, I get it now. So he came back, he got a job at Calvin, and he decided it may be helpful if he took a seminary class. You know, because it would. And then he took another one, because the first one went well, and then he took another one, and then he realized that he actually was a seminary student. 
And he realized that what he was doing fed his soul in ways that he could never have imagined. And on Thursday, he was able to tell them how much he loves working with you. Upper-class students and off-campus students and athletes are his area, but he loves working with all of y'all. And the firm that he turned down back in the day, Lehman Brothers. Aaron was invited to die to his dreams of professional basketball, Wall Street career. And for a while there, he was just wondering. He was in the tomb. It was three days of when is this going to happen? And then resurrection life. God says, I've got this. The worries that you have about what's coming next and how you're going to provide for your family and what, I got it. Because I'm a God of resurrection power. And the worries you have about what are you going to do after Calvin and how are you going to pay the bills and if I'm going to find anybody. And God says, look, those are all the demonic forces. Those are all the authorities, the dominions, the powers who are trying to pull my power out of your life to say that I'm not in charge of those things and I refuse to let you listen to those, those lies. I am a God of resurrection. I am a God of resurrection power. And the power of Jesus Christ, the power of our brother Jesus Christ, is that all of those fears, all of those things that threaten to pull us away from God so that we don't move toward God and come to know him better, but instead build walls of protection and fear, all of those things are now placed under his feet. All of the things that keep you from each other, all of the things that keep us from God. He says, I break the power of those things. The power of death is no more. The power of fear is no more because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of those things that you're worried about, all those things that you are afraid of, God says, you don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid anymore. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Because the power of the resurrection is the power of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the bread and the cup in which in one bite we taste death and life all mixed up together. And we get the opportunity once again to die to the things that are holding us back and rise to see what God has waiting for us. We approach the table tonight as people who may be afraid, but people who are so beloved by God. You are my brothers and my sisters, and our brother Jesus Christ, our beautiful Savior, has prepared this table for us. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he blessed God, he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this 
to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after he blessed God, he poured it. And he said, this blood, this cup is a new covenant. A new covenant in my blood. Do this to remember me. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pray with me the prayer of thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, may the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Almighty God, by your power, you raised Jesus from death to life. Through his victory over the grave, we are set free from the bonds of sin and the fear of death to share the glorious freedom of the children of God. In his rising to life, you promise eternal life to all who believe in him. We praise you that as we break bread in faith, we shall know the risen Christ among us. Therefore, we proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, that we may be one with all who share this feast. We pray in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks be to God. Christ makes us one. The peace of Christ be with you all. Before I invite you to extend peace to each other while you can still see me. We're going to uh, proceed with communion tonight. There will be a few different stations. You're invited to come forward to rip a loaf, piece off the loaf, to dip it in the cup, to partake. The person will remind you that this is the body and blood of Christ for you. You can respond with silence, with amen, with thanks be to God. The baskets are gluten-free bread. I'll be holding one of those for those of you who need that. Also, if tonight you are not a professing member of a church, if you are not a baptized believer of a church, if you are not in a space where you are able to come forward and participate in the feast, we invite you to come forward. And when you reach your place in line, simply cross your hands over your chest and you will receive a blessing. So please feel free to come forward and receive the blessing of God, either through the sacrament or through the spoken words of the elders and servers here today.